que é o Unificano, Lástima Maestro, to study the story of Genesis 6 to 8 of Noah and the judgment of the flood. And last time we focused upon how um, this account of the flood is a kind of archetypal model of the second coming of Christ. Do you remember that long ago? And we spent quite a long time thinking about the, uh, what God was saying through Revelation of what that last day would be like and how similar it would be to the last day of the old world that was destroyed by water. And tonight I've only really got one main point to make. Um, and that is to say that this account of the flood is not only an archetype of the second coming of Christ, it is also an archetype of the last judgment, the final judgment of God. The scriptures clearly teach that there will be a final day of judgment, um, and we can turn to many scriptures but we'll just choose one, um, and it might be helpful if, if we, we turn to the verses because it will help us um, to, to follow. Um, so we're going to turn to Revelation 20 and verses 11 to 13, which is a description of this final judgment. And I saw um, a great white throne, and him that sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books, according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. And so really my, the one point I want to make tonight, there's um, three points in the sermon, the point I want to make is that the flood event in Genesis which was an act of God's judgment, is a prototype or an archetype of the final day of judgment, which we read of here in Revelation and many other places. So I want tonight to examine briefly in which ways the flood models the final judgment. First of all, I believe that it models the final judgment, the great white throne judgment, because the flood provided a divine verdict upon the righteous and a divine verdict upon the unrighteous. The judgment of God upon the old world communicated something very clearly. The flood 
cleared the innocent and it condemned the guilty. Or put another way, the final judgment that we read about addresses exactly the same question that the flood of judgment addressed. And that question is, who are the people who will be vindicate, vindicated as belonging to God? That's the question that the final judgment will answer. Who are really God's people? We might be a bit surprised on the day, I think, if, if who are and who aren't. But that's the question. In 2 Peter 3, which we read, the Apostle points out that the final judgment will be a judgment of fire rather than of water. Um, but it's saying that this fire is a kind of discriminating fire. It will be a fire that answers the same question that the water answered in the flood. Fire will burn up those who do not belong to the Lord, but fire will purify, but not burn up, those who do belong to the Lord. Christians will go through the fire to the new heavens and to the new earth, and the people of God will be vindicated. God makes a verdict. There are other places in the scripture which we can turn to to make exactly the same point. Um, another prototypical event, judgment event, was the judgment at the Red Sea. And here we remember both water and fire were involved. But the Red Sea judgment, remember Israel came out, fled Egypt and before them was the sea, before them was the pillar of fire leading the people of God toward the sea. The question there again was settled, who are the people of God? Which God is more powerful, the God of Israel or the gods of Egypt? Who are the true people of God? Is it the Egyptians or is it the Israelites? And you will recall how the pillar of fire led them towards the water, to the sea. And that's a picture of final judgment. God's people make it through the Red Sea and they are vindicated. Pharaoh and his hosts on the, on the other hand are drowned. They are condemned. God makes a very clear discriminating judgment. He makes a verdict. He vindicates his people and he condemns the ungodly. And likewise, in the flood story, Noah and his family are delivered. They are vindicated. And I'll come back to that in a second. It's very significant in the New Covenant that both the flood judgment with Noah and the Red Sea episode with Moses they're both called baptisms. Um, we don't have time to go into the Red Sea one, but if you want to read it up on that, 
then it's 1 Corinthians 10 you need to read. Don't worry now. But that is described as a baptism. But in relation to Noah and the flood, the baptism referred to is in 1 Peter 3, verse 20. So if we could turn there, well it's not just verse 20, it's a few verses on. But if, you, if you begin in 1 Peter 3, verse 20, we read of this flood story described as a baptism. It says which sometime were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was a-preparing wherein few, that is eight souls, were saved by water. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Not the cutting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now that's not an easy verse. But here, um, Peter references the ark, and he says, he's basically saying that in this craft, eight people were brought to safety through the waters. And Peter says, baptism water baptism corresponds to the waters of the flood. He says that in verse 21. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Now that is something you very rarely hear in baptism services but that is what the Bible teaches. The flood was a baptism. The Red Sea deliverance was a baptism. Jesus said, this might help us to understand, Jesus said that the cross was a baptism. You see, the cross was a judgment too. The flood was a judgment. The Red Sea was a judgment. The cross was a judgment. And they're all described as baptisms. Speaking of the judgment of the cross which lay before him, Jesus said, but I have a baptism to be baptised with. And how am I straightened till it be accomplished? And so, as Noah and his family, and as the people of Israel were vindicated in those judgments, as they came through the water, safely to the other side, vindicated by God, so Christ is vindicated in that dreadful substitutionary judgment that fell upon him, upon the cross which he called a baptism. These judgments are baptisms. And therefore both Peter and Paul actually argue that water baptism in the new covenant is a sign that we, or the person being baptised, have been delivered through the waters of God's judgment. That is to say that Christ has taken our judgment for us and that we have made it out through faith 
that Christ is like the ark and that if we're in him then we are safe. Water baptism is a sign that this is what God does for those who trust in Christ for salvation. Now you'll have to try and remember something, I think I said this in a sermon fairly recently, that the, the New Testament takes a shortcut often because we don't believe that water baptism saves anyone in and of itself. We believe it represents a spiritual reality underneath it. But the New Testament quite often will just skip over that and go straight to the symbol. But it's not telling us that water baptism saves us. And it says that in this verse we just read. But it doesn't mean that. It means that which water baptism represents saves you. Um, the reality of the cross and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I do think sometimes we have to be gentle with people that misunderstand that because it is something which is not that difficult to get wrong because the Bible does say you are saved by baptism, water baptism, but it doesn't mean it, we have to understand it's talking about what water baptism symbolises. That's a digression. In baptism, and really in what water baptism represents and stands for, God makes a verdict. That's the way to understand 1 Peter 3, 20 and 21, which we just read. This is the way to understand it. There was a divine verdict. There is a divine verdict declared through the judgment of the flood waters. The flood judgment vindicates and justifies the elect through Noah and the ark. They're saved through water judgment. And in a similar way, as prefigured by the ark, we are saved through baptism. What baptism represents. The thing signified by this symbol. By the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? I hope it does. It's not an easy, an easy verse. It is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that saves us. We are brought through the waters of death like the eight souls that, and, that were in the ark and we are raised to life. We are, we were and we are in Christ as Noah and his family were in the ark through the judgment. And like them, we leave an old world, we leave an old life, and we enter into a new life. And just as they were vindicated and justified, so are we through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what Peter is saying in that very complicated verse. In other words, we can only understand 1 Peter 3, 20 and 21 in terms of union with Christ. That is to say, we were in Christ as he passed through the waters of death on the cross. And we were in him as he rose to newness of life. 
And so the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a divine verdict, it's a divine announcement of Christ's vindication. But it's not only a, vindic a vindication of Christ, it's a vindication of you and I, if we're Christians. Because when he died, we died. When he rose, we rose. When he ascended, we ascended. When he is seated at the right hand of God, we are seated in heavenly places. We are in Christ. We are in him as he went through his baptism. And like the flood, which is a baptism, the eight souls were safe in the ark as they went through the judgment. So we, in Christ, were, are saved and safe because we are in Christ as he bore the judgment of God. Romans 4 verse 25 says that he was delivered for our offences and was raised again for our justification. And that's why, turning back to 1 Peter 3 verse 21 in particular, it says, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. Well, that's a very difficult phrase, isn't it? But what it's saying is really what I've just said, partly what I've just said, that water baptism is not merely a Jewish cleansing ritual, but the sign prefigured in the flood story of God saving, delivering, and justifying his people, declaring them to be in the right. God making this verdict that his people are in the right. They are totally justified and vindicated. And therefore, Peter says, water baptism is not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. The only way to have a good conscience toward God is to be justified by faith. And the result of justification by faith is a good conscience toward God. It's the only way it's possible. And so water baptism, as it represents salvation, is not just a washing of the flesh, Peter says. It is a way of having a good conscience toward God through justification by faith. I know I'm stretching you because these are not easy verse. But what an amazing thing for Peter to have made this connection between baptism and Noah's flood. We, we would never have thought of it. Would we? But the scripture makes this amazing connection. Another key text which speaks of this divine verdict upon the righteous and the unrighteous is Hebrews 11, verse 7. Turn, turn to back if you would, please. Here again, the New Testament is commentating on the story of Noah and the flood. Hebrews 11, verse 7. 
It says, By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen, as yet moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. Right, so here again, we're not, we're, I don't want to get too lost in this, but we notice that in the flood judgment, again, there are these dual verdicts, condemnation for the world and salvation for Noah and his house. Um, and that's what this is saying here again. The flood proved that the earth really belonged to Noah in the long run. Of course it belonged to him in one sense as he exited the ark. But ultimately Noah would inherit the new, symbolically, typically, he would inherit the new heavens and the new earth. So the question that was answered by the flood judgment was, who does the earth really belong to? Was it the line of Cain, these people who were beginning to call themselves sons of God? Or was it Noah and his family, the elect people of God? And God again delivers his people through the flood judgment and makes a discrimination. He makes a verdict. As Peter is saying, in, in, as, as the writer to the Hebrews says here in verse 7, by the which he condemned the world, that's one verdict, Noah and his family became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. And so the whole time we, the, the, in God's judgments, both in the final judgment and all these models, these prototypes of judgment, and I've only just mentioned a couple, there are many more, a key theme is this discrimination, these different verdicts upon the righteous and upon the unrighteous. The truth is that the flood is not only a picture, a model of, of, the, of judgment, but it is that. But it's really a model of the whole gospel. When we think about the gospel that's in this story, it's absolutely amazing. Um, I think it's easy to. I think it's easier to understand. These judgments, we use two words. There, there is a judgment, the flood judgment. The judgment for God's people is, has a different meaning than it has for the people of the world. So there's a kind of penal judgment for those who are not God's people, which results in punishment and condemnation. But in the very same judgment for God's people, it is redemptive judgment. Not a different judgment. We go through the same flood. But for God's people, the outcome is redemption and becoming an heir of a new world. And that is really a key part of the gospel. And it's a key part of our understanding of the final judgment. When we just think about, just very briefly about the gospel here, 
God, first of all, he provided Noah and his family with a plan of deliverance. He made, he made a, a covenant with Noah and his family. It's often confused with the later covenant of where God gave the rainbow in the sky. It's a different covenant. But he made a very specific covenant with Noah and his family that they would be spared through the flood. God provided a plan of deliverance. It was God's plan from beginning to end. Well, salvation is too. God planned it. And then God secured Noah's family. He put them in the ark. We know that because God says, close the door. God is doing the saving from the beginning to the end. God is the one doing all the saving. Well, that's true in the Gospels, isn't it? We don't save ourselves, God saves us. And then when they were in the ark, God remembered them. He didn't forget them, he remembered them. God had made a covenant with Noah in chapter 6, 18, and God kept the covenant. And then God pilots the ark through the judgment waters. God was the pilot. It wasn't even a proper boat, it was built like a house. I mean, you would never build a, a ship or a, a boat like Noah did. It was built in a house-like form, which we'll talk about next time, because that's very significant. And then they rise up again out of the waters, which is a picture of resurrection. They are declared justified in the sight of God. They are the heirs of the new world. They enter into a new creation. And again, we'll talk about that next time. Now this is not only a picture of the second coming and the last judgment, it's also a model of the final state of the new heavens and of the new earth. And so here in typical form, in typology, we have the whole gospel. So if, if you just read this story quickly and at first glance you may think the flood is all about um, punishing, about destroying, about God taking vengeance on sinfulness. But it is that. It is that. But it's equally about salvation for God's people. This is a judgment that saves. It's the judgment the judgment is the thing that does the saving. There's penal judgment for sinners and there's redemptive judgment for God's people. Which is a wonderful and amazing truth to understand. You see, the gospel is foreshadowed by these Old Testament, what's known in, I must be careful about using theological terms and losing but there's such a thing as something called an intrusion these Old Testament intrusions of final judgment there are many of them in the Bible an intrusion is something where God takes something that will take place at the end of time and brings it forward or backwards brings it back in time for a temporary period it's an intrusion and, this is, and these types, these symbols are this is an example. This is a, an, intrude, an intrusion of the last judgment back into time, where this becomes a type of what will ultimately happen.
the most important intrusion of final judgment, where God takes something that would take place at the end of time and brings it back into history for a temporary period. The most important intrusion of all is the final judgment which intruded on Christ himself over 2,000 years ago. What I want us to understand tonight is that the cross was our final judgment. The cross was our final judgment. And this is very often misunderstood. And Christians, young Christians, can often be afraid of the final judgment. But you see, for you and I, our judgment, the great white throne judgment, has already taken place. The judgment has already been made. The verdict has already been made. We're already justified. And so for us, the return of Christ is simply a gathering to himself. Now, it is true that Paul teaches in 2 Corinthians 5 that we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now I don't know if that's at the same time as the great white throne judgment, whether it's a different time, and I really don't know about that. But it's called the judgment seat of Christ. And we all, as Christians, will appear before that. But Paul um, <clears throat> speaks um, of this judgment. The judgment for Christians, um, I think it's in 1 Corinthians, I shouldn't make things up as go on, I think it's 1 Corinthians, yes, 1 Corinthians 3. Now this is the type of judgment that you and I will face. It says there, Begin looking at verse 12. It says, Now, if any man build up on this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest. For the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive the reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Now that is, a, as again, I don't know, I generally don't know whether this takes place at exactly the same time as the great white throne judgment we read of, but what I do know is that this is materially a different type of judgment. This is not a judgment as to whether uh, this is not a judgment of pe a penal judgment. This is a judgment of rewards. This is a judgment where Christians appear before the before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account 
their life. And accordingly, Christ will give reward. No Christian will be condemned. Every Christian will be vindicated. You and I can be no more justified by faith than we are now. There's no percentage in it. We're not, somebody's not 50% justified or somebody's 100% or 70%. We're all 100% justified in Christ. Why? Because we've already been judged. We've already had our judgment day. We were judged upon the cross. We were in Christ. He bore our punishment. He bore the judgment. And in, as an intrusion of something which would take place on, upon us at the great white throne of judgment, he bore in his body for you and I. He bore the wrath. He bore the condemnation. And as it says in Romans 8, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, don't be afraid of the final judgment. The judgment will not be in terms of whether you will be lost or saved, or already saved. It will be a matter of rewards. Jesus gave a parable of um, a landowner, I think it was, who had some servants and sent them off with some money, different amounts of money, different called minus, M-I-N-A-S. Um, some came back and said, the one minus that you gave me, I turned into ten. Another one said, well, I had, you gave me these many minus, now I've, this is as much, now I've got twenty or thirty or fifty. And God says, and Jesus says to the man who invested, produced five minus, he said, well done. Be in charge of ten cities. Another in charge of more. I think that gives us a clue as to what the Christian's judgment will be like. It will be a matter of matching um, how faithful we have been with what we have been given and God will commensurately give us his reward. But even that, you see, is, a, is done through grace. Our reward will be completely out of proportion to what we have done. And so, Anthony might be given Brisbane and Adelaide and Cape Town to look after in the new heaven and the new earth. Somebody else might be given less, more. But it's still a graceful reward. It's not a matter of salvation. It's a matter of what Christ rewards us with. We will all appear before that type of judgment. But we're already, we're already justified by faith. And so, as I say, going back uh, to what I said originally, our final judgment 
has, has happened. And so for us, the return of Christ is, is a gathering to himself. And this gathering, another aspect of judgment is this gathering, this gathering to God, which I just want to very briefly explore and then come to, to a close. You see, from one perspective, the flood episode is the gathering of the elect, this redemptive gathering. And we'll also see this at the final judgment, the great white throne judgment. There will be a penal gathering, there will be a redemptive gathering. Jesus spoke of this very clearly in Matthew 25. And we will turn to it. He talked about all the nations coming before. That's verse, I think it's verse 31 of Matthew 25 for you. All the nations gather before him, and they will be separated into two groups. Um, there will be sheep, and there will be goats. And so there's this gathering and this separating. Again, it's part of this, this divine discrimination, this divine judgment. There is this gathering together to God, and then this not only to the, to the great white throne, but also to, into two groups, sheep and goats. And this is very evident in the, in the flood story. So if we look at um, Genesis 7, for example, in verse 1, we get this aspect here as well. This gathering collecting, separating type thing. Chapter 7, verse 1. And the Lord said unto Noah, Come now, and all thy house into the ark. For thee have I seen righteous before me and in this generation. So there's this gathering of Noah and his family. And then verse 7 of the same chapter. And Noah went in, and his sons, and his wife, and his sons' wives with him, into the ark, because of the waters of the flood. Again, gathering in to the ark. And then this is even extended to the animals. They're waiting two and two unto Noah in the ark, and male and the female, as God had commanded Noah. There's this gathering in. Is collecting and gathering and separating. And that will be, again, a big aspect of the final judgment. We as God's people, as his church, are gathered, will be gathered to him. That's what the second coming of the last judgment will be, a gathering of us to him. And we will be separated from those who will be condemned. We're not the same. God has made a verdict. Not any better. It's all by grace. It's done on the basis of justification. But it's a wonderful encouragement tonight that you don't need to fear the final judgment. If you haven't understood anything I've said, try and understand that. Don't fear it. 
You've already been judged in Christ. You cannot and will not be condemned with the world. You will have to give an account to Christ. He will assess us on the basis of what reward we will be given. It will not be a question on his lips as to whether we will be in heaven or whether we will be with him forever. That question has already been settled. We are justified now and forever. There is not some kind of second justification which seems to be an error that is coming in even to the reformed world. There's not some kind of second justification based upon our works. We are justified fully. We'll never be more justified than we are tonight. And so, in conclusion, the flood judgment for Noah and his family was a redemptive judgment. As the Lord of the earth, Yahweh, judges on behalf of his people, he defends and vindicates those under his protection. We'll do it now we've run out of time, but you read Psalm 18 sometime. Read Psalm 18 with the story of Noah and the flood in the back of your mind. And, and, and think of something, verse 16, for example. He sent from above, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. The, the flood is all in that psalm. Time and time again in the Word of God, we see God making this judicial discrimination between two groups of mankind. And this is done on the basis of their religious status. That is to say, are they or are they not God's people? For God's people, his judgments, whether appearing during the course of history, redemptive history, or in the final judgment itself, are redemptive actions divinely made on behalf of the people of God. Events like the flood and the exodus, they're a kind of interruption of the normal state of affairs. They're an interruption of the normal procedures of common grace, which we've spoken about. Common grace is the normal state of things. But sometimes God interrupts that. He interrupted it in the flood. We'll go on later to see how he interrupted it in the nation of Israel under the theocracy. There are times when God suspends common grace. And at the end of time, at the final judgment, common grace will be gone forever. And God uses these typical instances of judgment to show us what finally will take place on the final day of the Lord. A major aspect of this final day will be the full redemption and vindication of you and I as the people of God, the bride of Christ. In the end, there is an absolute discrimination between those who love God and those who hate God. And I suppose beyond me encouraging you not to be fearful, 
beyond me encouraging you to be obedient and to, like Paul, be almost greedy for as much reward as we can have at the judgment seat of Christ. Maybe the most important thing I can say to you is to make sure that you really are on the Lord's side. That you are one of God's people. Because one day it will become absolutely plain. There will be a divine verdict. God's people will be vindicated. And those who are not God's people God's enemies will be condemned. And that is pictured in a prototype in the story of Noah and the flood. Thank you.